heard the story of a woman who was flying on a plane and she had her Bible in her lap and she was reading it. And the man sitting next to her obviously noticed her reading the Bible. And this was a man that didn't believe in the Bible or believe in God. And, you know, he just let her read it for a little while. And finally, it got the best of him. And he looked at her and said, ma'am, if I can interrupt you, can I ask you a question? She said, sir. He said, I, I, I've noticed you've been reading your Bible. Do you believe everything in there is true? And she said, absolutely, it's the Bible. He said, but, you I mean, some of those stories are so far-fetched. I mean, you, you can't believe everything in there is true. For instance, like the, the story of the dude that's in the, uh, the, the belly of a whale for, for three days. That, that, that can't be true. You believe that's true? She said, yes, it's true. It's in the Bible. He said, well, that's just impossible. How can a person survive three days in the belly of a whale? And she said, you know, that's a great question. You're talking about Jonah. She said, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And the man said, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? She said, then you can ask him. <laughs> Hell. It's an interesting topic to me for our society. It's an enigma to me, really. Because in our culture, we, we don't give a whole lot of significance or thought about hell, really. Yet at the same time, we use hell quite a bit in our vocabulary. We talk about it all the time. When we greet people, sometimes people insert the word hell. When something weird happens, we want to know what happened. We will use the word hell sometimes. When we want to be emphatic about our yes or our no, somebody will insert the word hell from time to time. When we get angry, people will say in their anger, that's a place they want people to go, even though they may not even believe in it. It kind of shows the neurosis of our society. Something that we give not a whole lot of significance to, yet it seems to be something that we talk about quite often. We write books about it. We tell jokes about it in our society. We make movies about it. We even have television episodes about it. That great spiritual television program, Seinfeld. Anybody ever watched that, that, that spiritual show, Seinfeld? It was in the 90s, but all the reruns are now. So even if you weren't around, then you've, you can see the reruns, obviously. Well, in one of the episodes, one of the main characters, Elaine, finds out that her boyfriend, Putty, believes in God, and that leads to some interesting dialogue. And just take a look at this clip, if you would, please. So where do you want to eat? Feels like an Arby's night. Arby's beef and cheese and... Do you believe in God? Yes. Oh, so you're pretty religious. I try. So is it a problem that I'm not really religious? Not for me. Why not? I'm not the one going to hell. Lane, they forgot to deliver your paper today. Why don't you uh, just grab that one? But that belongs to Mr. Potato Guy. That's his. Come on, I get it. <laughs> well, if you want it, you get it. Sorry, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> oh, but it's okay for me. Oh, what do you care? You know where you're going. <laughs> All right, that is it. I can't live like this. Oh, no. Come on. All right, what did I do? David, I'm going to hell. 
the worst place in the world. The devils and those, those caves and, and the ragged clothing. And the heat, my God, the heat. And what do you think about all that? It's going to be rough. <laughs> you should be trying to save me. Don't boss me. This is why you're going to hell. I am not going to hell. And if you think I'm going to hell, you should care that I'm going to hell, even though I am not. You stole my Jesus fish, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Now, there's a lot of things wrong with that on all kinds of levels. And I'm not sure if this, this sermon needs to be about marriage or hell, or I guess in some cases marriage is hell. Who knows? But in that episode, as satirical as it was, it kind of gives us some concepts of, of, of hell that people have. For instance, we see the self-righteous religious guy that is condemning everybody else to hell but himself. And then you have Elaine who has this idea that hell is this cosmic torture chamber. And even though it's satirical, I think it captures some things, misunderstandings and conceptions about hell. And today, the topic in our Tough Topic series is judgment. And I want to talk to you about what the Bible has to say to us about hell and judgment. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive study because the, the time we have uh, for us what doesn't allow for that. But hopefully, it will help clarify some things and maybe give some understanding as to the significance of judgment and hell and what its purpose is, and then maybe help to answer that million-dollar question of why would a loving God send people to hell? So this morning, as we look at this, I want to take a look at John 3, 16 through 18. Even if you are somebody that hasn't attended church very, very often in your lifetime, you're probably familiar with these verses, especially John 3, 16. But this is what we'll be looking at this morning as we look at this topic together. John 3, 16 through 18 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your presence here. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. And I ask You in Your name, in the name of Your Son, to enable us to hear what You would have to say to us today. Father, enable me to share it. I pray that it would give us good clarity and understanding to your truth about who you are and about the whole idea of judgment and hell. God, I thank you that you are here with us now to show us your great mercy and grace and love so we can truly understand the, the, the weight of the fullness of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to say to you from a scriptural standpoint is that hell is a place. It's a place. It's not just symbolic, some metaphorical thing, but it's an actual physical place. Now, we don't know where that place is. The Bible doesn't tell us. And we don't know exactly what that place is going to look like, but it is a place. In the New Testament, the word that is used 12 times to talk about hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was an actual location. Gehenna was located south of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus Christ. And it was a physical place. And there were three things associated with that place that when Jesus would talk about hell, which, by the way, 13% of Christ's teachings in the New Testament is about hell. Two-thirds of his parables have to do with either the resurrection or the judgment. So this idea of life after death was something that was significant in the life and ministry of 
Jesus Christ. Well, there's three things associated with Gehenna that when Christ would talk about it, the people would already be able to connect what he was trying to say. The first thing I would say about Gehenna is that Gehenna was the place where the garbage was burned. It was the city garbage dump. And so when Jesus would talk about Gehenna, the people would know that was where the garbage was and they would see the flames that were burning the garbage. Now, I want to stop right there for a moment just to put a concept of hell within our minds. What do we do with the garbage in our homes? We take the garbage in our homes and we put it inside some type of a container. We separate it from the rest of the house in its own confined container. We take that container either one or two times a week to our end of our driveway, to the street. And what happens? The city comes and grabs all the garbage in our neighborhood and takes it outside the city to its own confined place called the city dump. Why? Why don't we just let the trash build up in our streets? Why don't we let the trash just build up in our homes? Because trash is contaminated. Trash is disease-infected. It brings sickness with it. It's germ-infested. If we were to keep it around, it would bring disease and death. So to keep a sanitary society, the unsanitary trash has to be put in its own place. Let that be in mind a concept of hell for you right now. And the idea I'm trying to convey to you is that we deal in a concept of hell every single day. We're going to talk about more about that in just a moment. So when Jesus talked about Gehenna, the people would know that is the garbage dump. That's where the unsanitary is placed. A second thing associated with uh, Gehenna was that it was associated with great wickedness. In the height of the time of Israel, they would perform uh, uh, human sacrifices in Gehenna, which was in the Valley of Hinnom, it's called. And they would perform baby sacrifices, which was the height of wickedness. So Gehenna was so associated with the height of wickedness. And the third thing they knew is that Gehenna was the place of the criminal graveyard. Those that were criminals had been convicted. That's where they were buried. You might say it's the place of the wicked dead. So then when Jesus would talk about this place, hell, Gehenna, people would understand it's the place for the unsanitary. It's a place for the wicked dead. It's a place that's associated with wickedness. So we would have this concept of hell. Hell is a place. Hell is also a place of God's judgment. Now, as we saw in the clip, Elaine has this idea that hell is this cosmic torture chamber. That people are just being inflicted with pain constantly for really no apparent reason. Just for the chuckles of God. That God just kind of gets off seeing people inflicted with pain. And that's not it at all. However, I admit that the imagery that the New Testament can paint concerning hell creates this idea that it's some type of cosmic torture chamber. And so that calls for us to really look at the context of what it's telling us in Scripture. And here's some of the images, if we could just put those up, please, that we get about hell being a place of God's judgment. Let me just put them up there real quick, if you don't mind, Daryl. It's eternal, is weeping and gnashing of teeth, fire is associated with it, outer darkness, and then torment. All of these things, and there are verses that I've written down for you. If you want to jot those down and go read them on your own, you can. But here's some of the imagery we get that would communicate to us, yeah, hell is this cosmic torture chamber. So let's kind of take a look at this for a moment. The first thing about hell is this place of God's judgment is, is eternal. It's eternal. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that who should ever believe in him would not perish. That word perish means ruination. It means devastation. It means agony. 
but it means perpetually. Perpetual ruination, perpetual agony. It's something that's ongoing. And this eternal place, whoever is there, will have um, a, a total awareness. As much as you and I are aware of the things around us right now, we would be aware in hell as much as we'll be aware in heaven. Very alert and very aware of everything that is taking place. So it is eternal. Another image of the place of God's judgment is called weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's not necessarily a term we say very much now. But the idea of this term is this. Now listen closely. Weeping here means to have deep-seated regret. It means to have deep-seated guilt and remorse. And the regret and the guilt come from, one, one's wrongdoing, but also, secondly, the regret comes from forfeiting something that you had a chance to choose to bring benefit to your life. In other words, it's this. People who are in hell, they will be very much aware that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and the Son of the living God that God gave to bring salvation to all humanity. Now, while on this earth, for whatever reasons, they didn't choose to believe that. They, they rejected that. They didn't want to hear that or whatever it was. They did not choose to receive what God was offering to them. And when they're in hell, they'll be very much aware that they forfeited the very way of salvation that was offered to them, and they're going to walk around with eternity feeling this deep-seated regret and guilt in their lives. Anybody here ever done something? You made a choice that, man, you deeply regretted, that you felt really guilty about? That's a miserable, miserable place to be. Well, a part of the torment of hell is that there'll be no relief from that. There'll be no sense of getting over this deep-seated regret and remorse and guilt. It will be eternally continual in somebody's life. As well as gnashing of teeth is the idea of a clenched jaw. It's the idea of bitterness and resentment. It's the idea that I am bitter and resentful of where I am right now. And again, this will be something that will be perpetual in somebody's life as they spend eternity in hell. Do you know of anybody right now that's a bitter person? Is there anybody in your family that you know is kind of eaten up with resentment? Maybe it's something you have struggled with in the past. Maybe it's something you deal with right now. And you know the misery of that. It eats you up. So a part of the torment that we're talking about here is this weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is this perpetual, deep-seated regret and guilt and remorse and bitterness of forfeiting the very thing that would have enabled me to not be where I am. Fire is another image that we see. Now, we don't know if there's going to be literal flames of fire in this place called hell. We know that God in Scripture uses fire at times in, 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 in actually destroying places out of His judgment. But we don't know if there's actually going to be literal fire in hell, if you will. Because we do know this about Scripture. When fire is talked about, most often it's used in the idea of judgment. Even it may be physically that's happening in a place. But most of the time it's metaphorical. Fire is a symbol of judgment. It talks about God as a consuming fire, talking about His judgment. It talks about Jesus Christ will be coming in 
flames of fire. Talking about when he comes to bring judgment. We look at Revelation 20. It talks about the, the, the lake of fire, the place that we call hell. It's the place that the devil and all of his henchmen and his cohorts and his demonic powers are going to be thrown into this lake of fire. Now, we don't know if this is a literal lake that's on fire or it's just a symbol that this is a place of God's judgment. And I don't believe that it's going to be a place where there's all this physical fire and we're going to be burning constantly and feeling this burning of fire with no relief. I don't think that's the idea here. The idea of that it's a place of fire, I believe, is that it shows us this is a place that has the full weight of God's judgment upon it. That fire is a symbol of that judgment. And this is a place that will have the full weight of God's judgment upon it. In other words... In hell, there will be no presence of the mercy or the grace or the forgiveness of God. It will just be the full weight. Listen close. It will be the full weight of the judgment of God. What might that be? I believe that full weight is this. That in hell, those there will be experiencing the full weight of of wickedness and sin without restraint. In other words, the full effect of what wickedness and evil would bring into a place and into a person's life. You see, we live right now in a fallen world. This world is filled with a tremendous amount of wickedness and evil. Anybody in their right mind sees the wickedness and evil that exists in this world, in this fallen humanity. However, by the grace and the mercy of God, His presence is in this earth restraining the wickedness and evil. And even the most wicked of people can enjoy something good and holy and godly and pure in this world. There is some type of relief in this world, because of the grace and mercy of God, from the wickedness and evil, in hell, there will be no relief. It will be nothing but the full weight of the effect of unrestrained evil and wickedness. That's what is the consuming torment. Because the presence of God will not be there. Which leads us to the idea of outer darkness that's often referred to. Again, I don't know that that's talking about a physical outer darkness, that it's just going to be a very, very dark place. I believe that's more talking about the spiritual darkness. To be eternally separated from the presence of God. Let me tell you what makes hell, hell. What makes hell, hell is the presence of God is not there and I have no opportunity to know Him. That's what makes hell, hell. Let me tell you what makes heaven, heaven. As beautiful as the Word of God tries to describe heaven, what makes heaven, heaven is that the presence of God is forever there and I can know Him for all eternity. The outer darkness is the spiritual darkness one feels because they are eternally separated from God. So when we talk about the torment, the torment is the result of the deep-seated regret and remorse and guilt that one feels because of their sin 
and their evil. And because they forfeited the very way of salvation that was offered to them. And as a result, they feel the full weight of that wickedness and evil with no eternal relief or reprieve. Because the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of the presence of God is not there. That's the torment. That's the place of God's judgment. Hell is a place. It's a place of God's judgment, but it's also a place of God's justice. And here's what we have to understand. The judgment in hell that God gives is not inhumane and it's not unjust. It is based on the justice of God. Now, to look at the justice of God, the first thing we've got to do is look at the love of God. God is love. How many of you believe that? God is a God of love. Can you say amen to that? He's a God of love. For God so loved the world, we just read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and it's not a passive love, it's an active love. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Who is His one and only Son? Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? It's God in the flesh. God Himself came fully in the flesh of humanity, just like you and I. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish. See, His, his actions towards us to this world, is always out of His amazing love for you and I. He comes after the worst of all sinners, the worst of the worst of the wicked. He comes after them to turn to them. In fact, through His prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, God is speaking to His people. And this is what He says in Ezekiel 33.1. He talks to Ezekiel and He says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. That's the love of God. He takes no pleasure in the wicked dying without Him. He has come after them that they might turn towards Him. Peter writes to the New Testament in his second letter of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. He's writing to a persecuted church, and the church is saying, when's the Lord going to come back? Why is He being so slow in returning? Come and vindicate us. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, look what it says. Paul, uh, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Look at your neighbor and say, He's patient with you. Now look at him and say, But He's more patient with me. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Same word that John 3.16 uses. But everyone to come to what? Repentance. Why has He not returned? Why has He not come back? He is showing His amazing, patient love and that as many as possible would turn to Him in repentance. Repentance means to turn from the direction that I'm going by an act of my will towards God. It's what John 3.16 is writing about. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, to believe in Him, is to turn to Him and not just have a mental agreement that He exists, but that I have given my entire life to Him, that I base my entire existence upon Him, His ways, and His purposes. God's love towards us is that. He wants us to turn to Him. He's a God of love, but He's also a God of justice. 
He's a God of justice. Now, justice is not absent love, and love is not absent justice. Justice flows out of love. If we love someone, we want justice to be done to them. We don't want the unjust done to them. We live in a civil, just society. And what does a civil, just society look to base itself on? That those who do wrong are punished. Why? So that it will deter the rest of society for carrying out the same type of activity and to protect the innocent that are in society and to vindicate the victims of the wrongdoing that has been done. That is a civil society. Where does such civility come from? It comes from having a high view and value of a human being. It comes out of a love for people. That out of the love for people, those who are going to do wrong to bring harm to people, we must punish in order to protect, deter, and to vindicate. Now, believe it or not, we have this idea of loving justice, this concept of hell, in everyday life. Let's look at some of these. Within our own households. I know some of you may be thinking, yeah, my house is hell. Absolutely, Pastor. You're absolutely right. But think about this a moment. For those of you who have more than one child, it usually works best with more than one child. If you have one, it still works, but more than one, it definitely works. One of your children is misbehaving. They are just breaking the rules, and man, they're having a hard time with them. What is one of the things you do with them? There's a thing called time out. What do you do with that child? You remove the child from the rest of the family and you put them over in their own place, confined and contained to their own place so that they feel the full weight of their wrongdoing, the full weight of the judgment, and it also protects the rest of your children from acting that way. Tell. That's loving justice. In the workplace, people don't do their jobs. People don't show up. People even do unethical things in the workplace. What do we do? We fire them. We remove them from the rest of the workplace so that it doesn't, they don't continue to devalue and pull down the work that's being done and the workers involved. Schools. Students don't always behave properly, do they? They break the rules. And sometimes they'll violate the word rules to such a degree. What do we do? We expel them. We remove them from the rest of the school in order for them to feel the full weight of the judgment of their wrong, but also to protect the rest of the students so that other students will not follow in that way and to also vindicate any victims from the wrongdoing. In our civil society, people Break the law. What do we do with the criminals? We put them in jail. We put them in a prison. We put them in a place separate from the rest of society that contains and confines them in order to protect, in order to deter, in order to vindicate. It's, we have the concept of the loving justice of hell every single day in our society. So then why cannot we accept that God would exercise such a thing. Now I know what some of you may be thinking. 
Yeah, but pastor, you put a child in time out. You, you accept the child back in the family. You just don't leave them out there. They come back in the family. A child may be kicked out of school, but they can go to another school or maybe after a time even come back to that school. Or pastor, you fire somebody, they can go get another job or even after a time, they may be able to come back and get the same job. And pastor, you put people in prison, they do their time, they go through rehab, they get turned around, they can come back and be a responsible citizen of society. Yes. You know what that's called? Redemption. That's available to you and I right now. Absolutely. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, right now. I can come back to Him right now. I can turn to Him. Yes. But there's coming a day and time when redemption will end. And the opportunity to come to Him will be gone. You see, the great loving justice of God is that today He still allows a temporary type of judgment to come upon us. He allows us to feel the consequences of our sin. He allows us to, to feel that so that we will turn to Him. It's a part of His corrective measure. It's what we do as parents. But now's that time. If I die without Him, or He comes, and I'm without Him, the day of redemption has passed. And I will spend eternity in the sinful state that I was in. Moses in Exodus, he says this to the people talking about this loving justice of God. In Exodus 34, 7, he talks about God's love that God maintains or is maintaining His love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yes, I thank God for that forgiveness. But then look what he says. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the loving justice of God. Who are the guilty? Romans 3.23. Read this out loud with me, please, if you can see it. Can you see that out there? If you can, read it out loud with me, please. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's the guilty? Every one of us. Every one of us are guilty and deserve the punishment of God. But God, out of His great love, has offered us something different. And look what John writes in verses 17 and 18. This is so important in John 3. Look at this. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Condemn means to bring the verdict of judgment. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to do what? Say it loud. Save the world through Him. Jesus Christ's first coming. He doesn't come to render the final judgment. He comes to bring salvation from it. Verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Every one of us without Jesus Christ stands condemned. We are, we are candidates for the full weight 
of the final judgment of God because we are guilty of sin against Him. But when we choose Jesus Christ, we come out from under the judgment of God and instead we get the righteous forgiveness of Almighty God. You want to see the greatest picture, the greatest symbol of the loving justice of God. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the greatest symbol of the loving justice of God. Because you see, Jesus is taking my judgment. He's taking my judgment. He didn't deserve it. He didn't sin. You know what Jesus is feeling? The full weight of the effect of sin and evil. He, he's taking my judgment. Which meets the justice of God. And instead, what do I get? I get His righteousness. Do you know how God looks at me as a follower of His Son, Jesus Christ? He doesn't look at me through my imperfection. Do you know how He looks at me? Through the perfection of His Son, Jesus Christ. See, when it gets right down to it, God doesn't send anybody to hell. Hell is my choice. Hell is a place. It's a place of God's judgment. It's a place of God's justice. But it's a place of my choice. He doesn't send anybody there. It's a place I choose to go to. You see, God, through Christ, is reaching to every one of us. He's done everything to show us the cross of Jesus is the greatest stumbling block to hell. It's the greatest stumbling block. He's come after us. But He's not going to violate our free will to choose. And if I've chosen in this life to basically say, God, I don't want your way, I want my way. I don't want what you have to offer to me, I'm going to go my way. And if I die, or he returns and I'm in that condition, you know what God basically says to me at that point? He says, okay, have your way. Have your way. Hell is basically that. God letting me ultimately have my way. Because if I don't want to spend my life with Him now, God's not going to force me to spend my life with Him for eternity. Hell is basically saying from God with a broken heart, have your way. So what is this place called hell? It's a place of eternal judgment. 
exercised by God's justice for those who by their choice have rejected God's offer of eternal life through the love of Jesus Christ. Or better yet, it's God granting us our way. Max Licato, one of my favorite authors, he says this. He says, thanks to Christ, earth can be the nearest you come to hell. But apart from Christ, this earth, earth is the nearest you'll come to heaven. I want to invite the band to come up quickly, please. There's a story told of a man by the name of Dr. Maurice Rawlings. He died about six or seven years ago, maybe a little longer now. He was a surgeon, a scientist. He was actually Dwight D. Eisenhower's personal physician during World War II. Rawlings was a professed atheist, didn't believe that God existed. Scientist, humanist. And one day while he was giving a man a stress test, the man dropped dead with a heart attack. They got the man up on a table and Rawlings opened up the man's chest and put his hand inside to manually massage the man's heart. And as he was massaging his heart, the man came back to life and began to cry out, I'm in hell! I'm in hell. I'm in hell. Somebody help me. I'm in hell. And it's so scared Rawlings, he pulled his hand away, and the man died again. Rawlings kind of got himself back together and put his hand and began to massage the heart. And again, the man came to, and the man said, help me. I'm in hell. I'm in hell. And Rawlings, again, startled, could see the stark fear on the man's face. The man's hair was literally standing on end. In fact, Rawlings tells this story in a book he wrote to Helen back. And four or five different times as he was massaging the heart, the man would come to. He would say to the doctor, he says, don't stop, don't stop. Don't you see I'm in hell? Help me. Help me get out of hell. And Rawlings finally, in frustration, he told the man, keep your hell to yourself. I'm trying to save your life. The man kept crying out, I'm in hell. Help me. Finally, Rawlings reached back in his mind to try to remember the one or two times that he ever went to Sunday school in his life. He said to the man, pray this prayer. Jesus, forgive me. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven with you. And if I die, I want to be in heaven with you. But if I don't, I'm on the hook for you for the rest of my life. The man prayed that prayer. Perfect peace. No fear. Total calm. It so rattled Dr. Rawlings. This is what he did. He writes this in his book. Amidst the researching of the Bible, I found that what I experienced scientifically was supported scripturally. Before this episode, I always felt that death was a routine experience or occurrence in my medical practice, regarding it as an extinction with no need for remorse or apprehension. But after what I experienced, I was convinced there was something about this life after death. All my concepts needed revision. I needed to find out more. It was like finding another piece of the puzzle that supports the truth of the Scriptures. I was discovering that the Bible was not merely a history book. Every word was turning out to be true. So I decided I better start reading it very closely. And I became a Christian. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son 
that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. To those of you here today that you're not sure, you're, you're uncertain about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you, you're, certain, you're, you're completely certain that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today I offer that to you. I offer you an opportunity to choose Him today. At least let me encourage you to move towards Him. Maybe some of these words have struck a chord within you, but you're not fully certain. Well, let me just encourage you, move towards Him. Because I tell you, if you move towards Him, He'll begin to reveal Himself more to you. But today you can make the choice to know Him. Not just to escape hell, but to know this wonderful God who loves you with an everlasting love. So to those of you in this room who may not walk with Jesus, I offer you to Him and Him to you. For those of you in here that are followers of Christ, maybe you understand this better than most. I know you, perhaps you have a loved one or a close friend that as far as you know, they don't know Jesus. As far as you know, their destiny is hell. We're going to pray for them. But also, I want to say to the church of the Canton campus of Mount Perrin North, I want to share these words from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a 19th century pastor, preacher, thousands of sermons that he wrote that are still in existence today. Some of them, some of the people consider him one of the greatest orators of church history. But I want us of the Canton campus to hear these words from Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Canton Church, let's make it so difficult for the people in our lives not to know Him. To me, that's worth living for. I invite you to stand. going to ask for a show of hands but I am going to lead in a prayer anybody in here who says you know what I need to make a decision for Jesus Christ today I, I want him to be Lord and Savior of my life I want him to be my God I'm going to lead in a prayer I want everybody praying this but especially those in the room that are saying I need to move towards Jesus today but everybody repeating this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son Jesus Christ who died on a cross for me that I might be forgiven of sins and escape eternal hell that I might have eternal life. 
I confess my sins. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Lead my life. Guide my life. Direct my life. Be the God of my life. I give you my life. I believe right now you've forgiven me of my sins. I believe right now I have eternal life in you. Thank you, God, that I belong to you and you belong to me for all eternity. Father, I pray right now that the living reality of that prayer, the sincerity of it by faith, is coming to life in every heart that needed to pray that prayer and believe it in their soul. I pray the peace of forgiveness and salvation to come upon them right now. I pray the guilt of sin, the, the remorse will be broken off of their lives. And as we sang about earlier, that the slavery of fear would be gone and the sense of the confidence that we are now a child of God would refrain within their lives right now. And Father, now I pray for every loved one. I pray for every close friend. I pray for those that we come in contact with on a regular basis that don't know you. Help us in this room that walk with you, God. Give us the boldness and the sensitivity by which to share our faith, by which to live our lives before them as to who we are in you. Father, on behalf of this campus, I pray, we are going to make it very, very difficult for those we know to go to hell without having an opportunity to know who you are. Establish us as that kind of a place for one purpose, your praise, your glory, and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Give God praise for his grace.